He was building both killing camps uh, and slave labor camps. He was the person who uh, found Auschwitz to be the perfect site for the super camp, uh, and he uh, laid the groundwork uh, and made the plans to double it in size and then redouble it. You're listening to Code Red with Secure America Now, the largest national security grassroots army. A few weeks ago, I met Dean Reuter for the first time. It happened to be the day he received his advanced copy of his book, The Hidden Nazi. He told us the outline of the book's plot, and I absconded with his copy. What a fascinating story and read. A Nazi at the pinnacle of the murderous Nazi regime had been rediscovered by Dean and his co-authors. Dean, thank you for taking the time to discuss this, this exciting story. Well, thank you so much for having me on, Alan. I, I certainly appreciate you taking your time and putting me on your show. Thank you. Um, Dean, let's begin with the big question. Who was General Hans Kammler? It's a great place to start. Um, the Hidden Nazi, the book, describes Hans Kammler as uh, among the most all-powerful, all-evil Nazi generals. Um, indeed, uh, Hans Kammler helped make the Holocaust possible, which is really an extraordinary claim, I know, but it's actually true. He really did help make the Holocaust possible, he, and he was, which makes him the personification of evil, in, in my opinion. But he was also ruthlessly powerful as well. By the end of the war, um, he turned his work to Germany's secret weapons and ruled all of Germany's secret weapons, including the infamous German vengeance weapons, the German V-1 and V-2 rockets, but also their jet aircraft, all their special munitions, uh, radar, infrared, nuclear weapons, and on and on and on. Um, but nobody's written about Hans Kammler. Um, he's just escaped uh, the scrutiny of history, and he's escaped the Nazi hunters as well. You mentioned in the book that originally there was a report that Kamler had, in fact, committed suicide. Can you explain uh, why you think that is not the case? Sure. I mean, and that is the reason, to, to provide the context, that's the reason nobody pursued him. We, in doing our research for this book, we contacted the Wiesenthal Center, we contacted the Mossad, we contacted the U.S. Department of Justice Office of Special Investigations, which is our Nazi hunting group, and confirmed with them that nobody had hunted Hans Kammler. Um, they, they, they said, uh, essentially, we had to pursue living war criminals. Uh, and they didn't pursue Kamler because he was adjudicated dead. The war ends in 1945, and according to his driver, uh, despondent Hans Kamler walks off into the woods and shoots and kills himself. And then a German court puts its imprimatur on that uh, in 1948, adjudicates him dead, so nobody pursued him. Uh, but we found documents, official government documents, uh, that show he didn't die at the end of the war in May 1945. He survived. Uh, and the U.S. government had him in custody for at least 10 to 11 months, um, and then he truly does disappear. Uh, and The Hidden Nazi, the book, uh, talks all about this and then talks about what likely became of him uh, after that period of time. In the book, um, and in your, your 
initial comments uh, to my question. You mentioned that he was uh, central to the Nazis' ability to execute the Holocaust. Can you get into a little more detail about that? What did he contribute to that horrendous crime? Sure. We cover that extensively in The Hidden Nazi. He was, by training, an architect and an engineer. Um, He was a professional man. He was a leader, not just a follower. Uh, But he was also an ideologue. He was among the first to join the Nazi party, even before Hitler became chancellor of Germany. And he joined the dreaded SS, the Schutzstaffel, even before Hitler became president of Germany. So he was in uh, on the ground floor, as it were. Um, He got his PhD in engineering in 1930 um, and uh, went on to do pretty much mundane um, but increasingly complicated civil engineering projects uh, until the war started. And then he started doing military-type projects. Um, But as the uh, Holocaust really got underway, um, his first notable project, by that I mean his first despicable project, was the expansion of Germany's concentration camps, making them physically larger in order to house more prisoners. So by 1943, he was was building both killing camps uh, and slave labor camps. He was the person who uh, found Auschwitz to be the perfect site for the super camp, uh, and he uh, laid the groundwork uh, and made the plans to double it in size and then redouble it. Um, And he went on to mechanized death. He uh, designed the standard concentration camp barracks, and we have his drawings, architectural drawings that bear his signature at the bottom. Um, And there's a capacity, the number of people that are supposed to be housed within uh, one of these buildings, 550 people per building, which would already be too many in one building, and stricken through that with, with a pen stroke. Uh, and, and then overwritten 774. Um, so we, we have this document that shows him just increasing human misery in those concentration camp barracks by 30 uh, percent, just with the stroke of a pen. And from there, he went on to design and install and then maintain the gas chambers and the ovens at these same camps, not just Auschwitz, but throughout the Reich. And we have the documents that show this. And, and, and it, I mean, it, it's important to understand, I think, that he was not just a paper pusher. He wasn't doing this from Berlin. He was a hands-on manager. He was visiting this campsites constantly. His nickname at the time was Staubwolk, which means dust cloud. Um, and that describes – it's a vivid description of him racing from one of these projects to another to another. Uh, and he was notorious for – barking orders, sometimes giving inconsistent orders, demanding too much from his staff. Uh, His staff testified uh, later at trial that they feared being shot by him for not performing. Uh, He he was a brutal guy. Um, So that was his contribution to the Holocaust proper. He then went on to rule uh, Germany's slave labor program, which was, uh, you know, a, a hideous sort of appendage of the Holocaust. You talk a bit about uh, what we know, uh, you relate what we know about his family lives. Can you talk about that, his wife, children? 
Yes, this is one of the things that just fascinated me because I wanted to put, I, I wanted to, to refresh people's memories about the Holocaust itself and about World War II more generally. Uh, I feel there's a you know a couple generations of people that 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 just don't get it, um, and we have people talking about concentration camps in America and et cetera, et cetera, uh, nothing comparable. So that was one of the reasons to write this book, and I really wanted to put some faces on some of these characters and describe them you know entirely. Hans Kammler, he was married the same year he got his PhD in engineering. He got married. Uh, to a, a country woman in, in a small town um, uh, that happened to be the, the childhood home of Frederick Nietzsche. He went on to have five children. Uh, two of his children died young, um, but from all accounts, he was a good husband and a good father. I, I went to Germany and interviewed uh, one of his sons um, who recognized that his father was, uh, in his words, up to his eyeballs in terms of, uh, you know, misdeeds and, and war crimes, uh, but still described him as a good father. Uh, and two of his children died early, one in a way that I just think is uh, unbelievably ironic, given his role in the Holocaust and designing the gas chambers. Uh, an infant daughter was uh, in the care of a nurse, uh, and the nurse left a bottle of chloroform open near the child, and, and that baby girl was gassed to death. Um, but even after all this, we just didn't find uh, any indications of empathy in Kamler. There was no self-awareness. Um, he seemed to have no regard at all for the men and women and children uh, that were sent to the gas chambers that, that he designed and then built. Uh, so in, in that way, an extraordinary, in a negative sense, an extraordinarily uh, negative, dark character. In addition to his contribution, I use that term um, advisedly, to the conduct of the Holocaust, you also spend quite a bit of time, and I found it fascinating, not being a scientist, you did a, or you do a superb job in explaining uh, his role and also going beyond his role, the Nazi missile program and why, in fact, it was such a potential threat uh, to the enemies of the Nazis. Sure. Yeah, the, the Nazis, uh, as, as the war is sort of in the middle of the war, it became clear that the Germans were not going to win the war. And there started to be these whispers and even uh, hints in speeches from Hitler and Goebbels and others about a wonder weapon, uh, the vengeance weapons, these super weapons that were going to reverse the course of the war. That was the plan. Um, the weapons they were referring to were the, were the vengeance weapons, the V-1 rocket and the V-2 rocket. Um, the V-1 was used extensively uh, over London, terrorized the city. It was it could be heard approaching it and went about 400 miles an hour, delivered a one-ton warhead. The V-2 was a supersonic liquid-fueled rocket that was so far ahead of its time, it didn't seem like it should belong on a World War II battlefield. Uh, supersonic meaning that uh, it would arrive before its auditory signature. So you could be walking down the streets of London or Southampton and a city block would just be shattered by one of these bombs. Um, and they were dropping these bombs, uh, you know, by the dozens, uh, sometimes by the hundreds. Um, and this was technology that everyone recognized everyone was going to want. The Russians were going to want it, the, the Americans, the French, the Brits, um, everybody wanted it. 
and there was going to be this mad scramble for this technology at the end of the war. Uh, and that's how Kamler was able to make his deal. I think a lot of people, a lot of your listeners probably uh, know or recall that the much of the German rocket team ended up in the United States. Uh, what they don't know is that it was Hans Kamler who, uh, as we describe in The Hidden Nazi, the book, he delivered the rocket team to the U.S. Army so that he could try and save his own life uh, and rehabilitate his, his career. One of the things that I found um, especially interesting was the decision on behalf of the United States government, and I'm sure the British made the same type of decision, of bringing people who had the expertise in nuclear weapons, in missile like uh, Werner von Braun, um, into the United States. And, um, and you show of how someone like von Braun, who was known to the general public as a missile man, is scientist. Okay, so he he worked for the Nazis. Now he's working for us. But you actually uh, demonstrate how von Braun and others were hardened Nazis when they came here. They believed in the master race. They believed in Adolf Hitler, etc. Yeah, that, that's very true. And I think that's one of the great contributions of, of, of the book, The Hidden Nazi, is it unmasks some of these characters. We found that, you know, as the war's ending, everybody recognized that the Soviet Union is going to be the new existential threat. So we started recruiting Nazis. Um, and in order to get some of them to the United States, sometimes we changed their names. Sometimes we scrubbed their records. Uh, to make them, you know, more benign. Uh, sometimes we just sort of, uh, with a nod and a wink, accepted the lies about their involvement with the Nazi Party. But we were able to show, uh, with von Braun and, you, as you say, some others, that they were more ardent Nazis. They joined the Nazi Party earlier than they said. Uh, they were uh, users of slave labor, um, not just passively, um, but sometimes very actively. Uh, in the case of von Braun, he hid documents from his his new U.S. friend, his new employers. Um, uh, and in the case of von Braun, he had been designing a a, a rocket that would have reached the uh, eastern seaboard of the United States, and had contemplated uh, coupling that rocket with um, a dirty bomb, uh, or and or nuclear a nuclear weapon, and or chemical or biological weapons. So. This is a guy who went on, uh, without careful examination, who went on to become an American hero. Um, but I do, in, in, in The Hidden Nazi, we do talk about the importance of that rocket team and the fact that they, uh, they got us on the moon, uh, but they also helped build our ICBM. So without them, I don't think we would have won the Cold War. So this calculation is very, uh, that was made in, in making the Candler deal from the American side very difficult to second guess. Now, during most of the war, Kamler is a right-hand man to SS Chief Heinrich Himmel. And by the end of the war, you show of how he actually becomes autonomous of Himmler, who was clearly one of the primary uh, members of, the, of Hitler's inner circle. That's that's exactly right. Himmler and Kamler were almost linked at the hip as the war as the war developed. They they were um, uh, 
lads in arms, I suppose, but they were also um, the leaders of the SS. This this was the core within the core of the Nazi leadership. These were the most ardent, uh, most devoted uh, uh ideologues in the Nazi regime, uh, and they had this plan, Kammler and Himmler did, to make the SS autonomous, even of the Nazi party, autonomous of the German government, a sovereign uh, entity, a state within a state, which they actually achieved at the very end of the war. Um, but their mechanism for doing that, uh, they needed a source of revenue. That became the slaves. Um, it's a little bit complicated, uh, but uh, the SS controlled the camps. Kammler took the uh, healthiest uh, of, the, of the prisoners, turned them into slaves, and then turned around and rented those slaves to the German government and to the traditional German army, the German Wehrmacht, uh, and provided a revenue stream for the SS. Uh, and the SS was building up its might and its muscle. Um, and Himmler was the leader of the SS. But by the end of the war, we see Himmler gets himself in a little bit of hot water with Hitler, um, and, and Kammler even eclipses uh, Himmler at the end of the war. We found that Himmler is requesting um, uh, things of, of Kammler, and Kammler's just saying, no, you can't have that, um, defying, defying Hitler and defying uh, Himmler uh, in, in the final stages of the war. It is extraordinary, and nobody's ever discussed this before. It's just not been known before uh, the hidden Nazi came out. One of the things that um, I found uh, particularly interesting in the Hidden Nazi is uh, the detective story of you and your team. And I would like to mention the other members of this research team of how you take sh shreds of evidence and follow them from put together an absolutely fascinating um, story. And it still amazes me after reading this book that with all the movies and the millions of word that, words that have been written about the Third Reich, and I've read a whole bunch of those words, not all of them, but a whole bunch of them, this is the first time I come across this monster um, who uh, was at the pinnacle of power in the Nazi regime. It, it, Alan, it really is extraordinary. And these guys, so one, there's two of them, uh, Dr. Colin Lowry in, in Northern Ireland and Keith Chester here in, in the United States, uh, who did all the research here. Colm did all the research there, and I helped pitch in where I could and made a couple trips to Europe, too. But uh, these guys were dogged and determined. Um, and Keith Chester, I've known for years, he came to me in 2007 because they had both been researching Hans Kammler. Uh, they didn't know each other. They found each other in a World War II forum online. And as a lawyer and a friend, friend of Keith, I did a collaboration agreement so the two of them could share information. And then Keith started telling me about this general, this all-powerful, all-evil guy who, as you've just described, has never been written about. And I was very skeptical. I thought, he just doesn't, he, he doesn't understand. He's not reading the documents correctly. Uh, there's something wrong here. He's got it wrong. Um, so I was very skeptical, but by the end, as they kept giving me more and more documents and we started doing more FOIA requests, I started doing research of my own uh, uh, at the Holocaust Museum and elsewhere here in the United States and in Europe, it all, it all comes together. Um, and I think it, it's an irrefutable case that this guy is exactly what Keith and Colm thought he was. But they, 
as you described, they were so persistent and so dogged, um, almost to an obsessive point. I think what what made this book hang together is they just never gave up. They just kept looking and looking and looking. And uh, you'd come up against one dead end after another after another, but uh, they just never gave up. I see on the jacket cover of the book, The Hidden Nazi, that it you you publish praise from such luminaries as George Will, Andy McCarthy, Amity Schlaes, Linda Hunt, and Alan Dershowitz. And those are all very substantial folks, and I'm sure that they had very similar responses to what I had, like, this really is a true crime mystery story that has implications, whether they're Marland implications, um, also showing us how little we actually know about great historical events, even 70 years later, 75 years later. Um, I, this was a an education, but it was a very pleasurable way to be educated. I do compliment you on writing a wonderfully entertaining and informative book. Well, thank you so much, Alan. And I, I take all the praise uh, to, to heart. And uh, you know, one of the one of the most fantastic things anybody said about this book was one of those people you mentioned who wrote who wrote blurbs. Uh, sent me an email privately saying, "Hey, I was going to read this book just sort of." give it a light reading in order to write a blurb, but I started reading it and I couldn't stop reading it. Um, and that was a private comment, so I won't tell you who it was, but it was from one of the people you mentioned. But it, it's those sort of things that are really exciting uh, to hear as, as an author. So thank you for having me on, Alan. I certainly appreciate it. Well, I appreciate you taking the time. I um, uh, Are you going to continue your research into this monster or you know, uh, are you going to leave for a that that's a great question. It's it's our hope, honestly. You know, we found I mentioned how dogged these these guys were in in their search. Uh, we found lots of dead ends, lots of leads that we could follow up on. It's our hope that when this book becomes more popular and as people read it, somebody's going to recognize the name and think, "Oh, my uncle talked about this guy." Uh, and given the state of the documents, I think it's likely somebody's got a box of documents in their basement or in their attic, uh, or they'll find them in their grandfather's house. Um, and, and there's more to be learned about this character. Um, we had FOIA requests that were just rejected out of hand, uh, where U.S. government agencies would say, yes, we have relevant documents, one produced in 1969, one produced in 1987, decades after this guy supposedly uh, was killed, uh, killed, killed himself, um, that the government won't produce. Um, can you so just, there's, there's uh, more out there. Can you just – can you just – Describe what a FOIA request is. Yes, of course. I'm sorry. Yeah, a FOIA, FOIA stands for Freedom of Information Act, and it's a mechanism that any private citizen in the United States can make a request of its government, any agency of the government, uh, for documents. You describe what you're looking for, uh, and the government will produce them. If it's an extensive search that's required and a lot of photocopying, there will sometimes be a fee involved, uh, but there's a, a floor for that. So most FOIA requests are free to process. They're free to the citizens. Um, it's a way to provide transparency into government. And the two things I was talking about here, we requested uh, from a government agency documents they had on Hans Kammler. And they came back with a denial saying, 
we have a document from 1969. It's 35 pages long. Uh, we can't provide you even a redacted version, a partial version. We provide you. A, we have a 1987. Do, we have a 1987 document. So this is 40 years after the war ends. Um, that concerns Hans Kammler. It's 87 pages long, and we we provide you nothing. And we appealed that uh, and, and got nowhere with it. And then years later, we made a second request. And they said, no such documents exist. So. Okay. Bureaucracy works in mysterious ways. It sure does. Uh, look, I, I urge everyone, simply because it's educational and entertaining, to purchase a copy and read The Hidden Nazi. You won't be sorry that you did it. It's a fast read. It's, like I said, extremely informative. And, Dean, I thank you for taking time and uh, sharing your thoughts um, on the book. And uh, I look forward to having you on again. It's been a lot of fun, Alan. Thank you so much for having me on. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Code Red with Secure America Now. We are the largest national security digital platform in the nation, dedicated to bringing critical security issues to the forefront of the American debate. For more information, visit our website at www.secureamericanow.org. Don't miss a single Code Red podcast. Subscribe today on Spotify, iTunes, or Podbean. You can also find the Code Red podcast on YouTube.